welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 19 of Sleep Talk. So our theme this month is going to be winter blues. In Melbourne, in Australia, the days are getting longer and getting darker and colder and more miserable. <laughs> you sound depressed, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we're going to talk about winter blues. Because it is a time of the year when people can feel uh, a little lower. Have you been, Moira? Oh, I must admit, I'm dropping off a bit on my exercise, Sleep, feeling a bit sleepy in the mornings. I don't think I've got winter blues just yet. Yeah, I think it's a, it's definitely a seasonal change um, in my levels of motivation. Oh, we've got another three weeks till the winter solstice, so you can just <laughs> let that mood drop a little bit more. And yeah. You might be able to get a full-blown case of winter blues. I do look forward to June 21. So then after that is this pure optimism between June 21 and December 21 that we just get lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter, looking forward to the end of the year. And I like that. And I feel like just at the moment, just before June 21, it's just, yeah, it's a, in the Southern Hemisphere. Most of our listeners are probably in the Northern Hemisphere. I'm not, not quite sure who's listening. But yeah, it is a difficult time. But we shouldn't complain too much really because we're... But we still do get a lot of sunshine. Absolutely. And as we'll get to when we talk about the winter blues, in, in doing some research for this episode, I was looking at the uh, where Melbourne is on the map and we're at 37 degrees longitude. And some of the places in Sweden are like 68 degrees and 70 degrees and so much further from the equator. So yeah. maybe we don't have it so bad. Yes, I think. <laughs> I agree. So what's been in the news for you and what's been happening over the last month, Moira? little plug for Sleep Awareness Week that's coming up July 3 to July 9th. So busily planning for that. And the theme in Australia is going to be around um, workplace lighting, the importance of good good lighting in the workplace and good and appropriate work schedules to, to optimise well-being and alertness and therefore safety and productivity mm-hmm. and therefore having a better sleep at night too. So it's interesting, normally we have the other way around. We think about, you know, sleep better and therefore things are better at work. But we're having the opportunity to just look at, let's let's get the workplace healthier mm-hmm. and smarter and it probably will improve your sleep anyway. So it's not a direct, it's about sleep awareness. It shouldn't. It's really about alertness and safety and productivity and health, but it's under Sleep Awareness Week. There's certainly a bit of scope for that. I remember I saw someone only one or two years ago who I was a train driver here in Victoria and he got his roster on an app, had this high-tech way of getting his roster delivered, but it was a roster that was drawn up in the 1890s. Oh, so really? So yeah. 120-year-old That's... roster yeah. delivered by app. Yes. <laughs> So therefore, yeah, so we would be yeah, that's highlighting to employers and, and employees for them to realise that there is a lot of scope for improving, you know, work shifts in this day and age since the 1890s and understanding what works better for people. So we'll probably talk about that in another episode, actually, this is a whole a whole episode on that. Yeah, there's certainly, you know, endless things to talk about with that fatigue, workplace, yes. sleep. Um, how to optimise performance. You know, whether to have night duties and then day duties or start off with day duty, then go to night duty. And those that do have to rotate, you know, it's a bit of a can of, can of worms, though, isn't it? Fortunately, between us, we know some people to talk to who've got a fair idea about that sort of yeah, thing. So, yes, yes. Uh, we some, can some, get some good guests on. We would. Yeah, so Sleep Awareness Week is coming up, but in the USA, it's already been in late, late April. So media, you've been doing a few things. Yeah, there's been a fair bit in the media. So I've been talking on Lifestyle Radio about debunking sleep myths. An article actually in The Guardian in the UK, it was if you eat two kiwi fruit, that's the perfect way to sleep. Oh, so a, reporter, a reporter called me about it and said, you know, what's this, eat two kiwi fruit? 
looked it up and it was a Taiwanese case series published in 2011. Ah. That, you know, fast forward six years, a freelance writer for The Guardian decides, you know, two kiwi fruit is what you've right. got to do. And it gets publicised mm. worldwide as the, the secret. So I was trying to debunk some That's sleep. good. Oh, there's plenty of those up there. There's stacks. That would have been, that's great. Have you got that as a recording on Yeah, I'll put, a, I'll put a link up on the show notes. Excellent. Uh, there's also been a lot of interest in the health, both health professionals uh, media as well as in the lay media about suvorexins, which is now available in Australia. And we did mm. an episode, two episodes ago, mm. about uh, suvorexin as a treatment for insomnia, a new medication for insomnia. And what about yourself, Moira? Have you been doing some media work to get the message out about yeah, sleep? Yeah, yeah. It's always a, probably at least once a week I get asked to do a radio, mostly radio, you know, I prefer that. <laughs> I've been doing some radio for um, just the local, there was an interview last week on 3CR, just the community radio. And it was great. I love it. I love, I love that any media outlet, no matter how big or small, is interested in doing the stories on sleep. I did notice ABC are doing a lot at the moment. I haven't been involved in the ones, but there's been a lot of uh, podcast series on on different aspects of sleep we can put it we'll put a link up to those but also want to discuss it in another episode really the yeah. the one i did talk to you about it yeah, off we'll, air we'll put a link to that <laughs> you know the one about trialing cpap mm. things. Yeah, yeah. There, there's lots of there's lots of things to talk about about that i yes. had to take a, a stiff drink and a valium to be able to get through all four episodes <laughs> yeah and there's actually a there's a new show on the abc talk it's called ask the doctor have you seen that no i haven't seen that one and so new has got these gorgeous like they're all very young and spunky young doctors they've mm -hmm. obviously very just maybe just graduated or they've just been asked to do this episode i presume they're still working as as medical doctors and they are just taking on different health issues. It's actually quite good, like debunking myths, exactly. And right. just thinking about, you know, talk, lactose intolerance and all these sort of fads and things like that, but looking at from a medical, medical perspective. And I noticed that the episode, I haven't seen it yet, but the episode from last week is on sleep, sleep disorders. So we'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. So as we've discussed in the introduction, the theme for this month's podcast is winter blues. We're coming into winter. There's this belief that people actually have more depression and lowered mood in winter. So we'll try and tease out whether that is actually the case, what might be some of the factors that contribute to that, and how it varies in different places around the world. So Moira, we talked a bit about in the introduction about our own sort of personal experience and the you know, as the days get a little longer, sorry, the nights get a little longer and the days <laughs> get a little shorter, we're just not getting out as much. Yeah. What do you notice? Personally or with my client oh. group? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I notice that people are tending to hibernate a little bit more, like people that might be, I mean, you literally, you, you cut off from many, many hours of daylight that you used to have, like people walking home from work or socialising or doing games, it's now all in the dark. So I notice that people's uh, sleep some people can say that their sleep is a lot worse in winter. Most people say it's better. I found that that they just, I think there's just there's more opportunity to get more sleep. Yep. And in some people, that's the problem. It's actually this hypersomnia that they get. They're very sleepy, and they, all they want to do they sleep a bit earlier or a bit. Or they're sleeping in the mornings and finding it hard to get up out of bed. There's one of my patients from last week who's got a range of sleep disorders like narcolepsy, obstructive sleep apnea, restless legs, insomnia. You name it. He's got a range of stuff, very complex. But he says that winter's better. He really enjoys winter. He quite likes that. He just sleeps, just sleeps a bit better. Yeah. For some reason, it's true. A lot of people I see with insomnia just dread the hot weather. 
And yes. They, uh, yes. Look forward to the winter as a time when beds cozy, yeah. and comfortable. And it's just more conducive, I think, isn't it, to to being under the covers? So yeah, on a personal level, I, yeah, I've already, I don't feel like I'm at my best in winter, but still fine. Like I don't think there's any any diagnostic criteria that I meet. Um, <laughs> apart, apart from the other diagnostic, <laughs> we all, we all yeah. exactly. I probably fall into some category somewhere. What about you, though? How are you talking about this? You know, lack of light or reduced light. Not you know. How are you going with that? Yeah, pretty good. I don't seem to have a big seasonal difference, mm. though. Or as you know, I've, throughout my life, I've always been an early morning person. Yes, extreme. And, yeah, when I was in primary school, you know, paper round was my thing. <laughs> so I shared a bedroom with my brothers, and in summer, I could get up. It was light. I could go and deliver newspapers before anyone else got up. It was mm. fantastic. But yeah, Didn't... this time of the year, it was a bit of a harder slot. <laughs> yes. It was cold and wet. And you dark. get home in the dark as well. I'd still get home in the dark. So in re- doing some research for this theme, there was a really lovely article uh, we came across in the Atlantic that a lot of fascinating things about how people in Sweden and Norway cope with winter and the extended light. And some of the things that brought home for me was that in some of those towns that are you know, more than 60 degrees uh, north longitude, they only get one hour of light. I know. Over winter. It's extraordinary. They must be listening to us and just shaking their heads thinking, what have they got to complain about? Yeah. It's quite extreme, isn't it? Yeah, and the story about the man that set up a whole series of mirrors mm. so the sun that was on the distant horizon would only see a very high point just out of town. So they set up all yes. these mirrors on the high point to reflect sun into the yeah. city so yeah. people could bask in this little patch of sun. The article in The Atlantic about long winters in Sweden and Norway made me want to try and talk to someone in Sweden to get an idea about what it's actually like to live through a long winter. So I had the chance to talk to Martin Emtenas, a TV presenter who's been on In the Midst of Nature, a TV show that's a long-running show in Sweden. And Martin lived in Umea in the north of Sweden for a number of years whilst he was involved in that show. So thanks very much, Martin, for helping us out. In Melbourne, we talk about winter blues, but really we only get about 14 hours of darkness in winter and still get 10 hours of light. What about in Sweden, where it's much darker in winter? Is winter blue something people see? Sweden is really uh, elongated. It's, uh, if you live in the south of Sweden, uh, you still get light. But if you really live far north in Sweden, you, you don't get any sunshine at all in wintertime. But, uh, and I've been living uh, for many years, not quite that far uh, far up in the north, but still you get really short days. So do people get blue in winter or get lowered mood in winter? I think it's like, uh, especially in springtime, when, when sun comes back and the, and the heat, I mean, it's, it's really cold uh, in the Swedish winter as well. It's dark and it's really cold. Uh, and I think uh-huh. when, when spring comes and, and people are just like blooming again, like flowers, so the, the first really nice spring day with a with a small sense of summer in it you can see that people are are something else uh uh-huh. happy and and out like uh, you can see in a city where it just fills up with this another feeling to it it's it's like people have been hibernating almost during the winter time if, yeah. even though people are uh, if it if you have a, a lot of snow and it's white, you still get the feeling of more light because it's uh, uh, everything is white and bright. But uh-huh. and people are out, you know, skiing and 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 kids are playing in the snow and all that. But 
when light comes back, it's still like people open up a little bit more, I would say. And, and I think that's a sign of being maybe not blue like that, more like hibernating. Yeah. Do you understand the difference in, in you're not sad, yeah. you're just sort of waiting. Yeah, and we get that too. So we, one of the things that we sort of wonder about in a research sense is, is it the lack of light that causes depression or is it something else about winter and we just don't engage as much or get out as much socially and tend to hibernate a bit inside? Yeah, that's really interesting because in Sweden you you get the cold and the dark. And if you don't, if it's still not like icy cold, uh, but you still get the same lower energy from people, then it's uh, maybe the sunshine that does it more than, than the cold. Because, I mean, in far up north, you can still... Uh, the winter will be so long, so you, you get still, you get the light back, but it's still cold and and really a lot of snow. But yes. when the sun comes back and, and uh, people open up more uh, than during the really dark dark period. Yes. I've never been living so far north uh, as to where you get where you get no sunshine, and I don't really know how the feeling in a community is when it's totally dark but but i i think people like just wake it out somehow yeah it must be quite strange and because i'm interested in and see a lot of people with insomnia or people who can't sleep what about when it's the completely opposite time of the year in summer when it's just light all the time how do people with insomnia manage when it's just light all the time (laughs) it's it's quite weird because because the the body don't get that uh, that feeling of uh, you know it's it's time to go to bed it's uh, uh-huh. this is the end end of the day uh, I was living uh, last summer for a month up in in northern uh, Norway uh, where you had really midnight sun in the middle of the night where it's supposed to be when the sun should be at its lowest it was still up like uh, almost noon kind of uh-huh. height for the sun and, and uh, that made you feel really you never got the this, this signal to the body that that this day is about to end yes so you never you never got tired like that so I think uh, if you live like that for a long time you can get probably used to it but but never that used to it because it's switching from summer to winter so it's not always like that right I had to uh, really put up blinders for uh, for the windows in the in the bedroom and, and make it totally dark so so you went from bright day into the bedroom totally black to just to be able to sleep because I, I think when when the sun really shines outside it's hard to it's hard to sleep yeah absolutely so thanks a lot for those insights and being able to compare it to what we're used to in Melbourne. One of the things we're interested in is does longitude impact the risk of winter blues or having a lowered mood uh, over winter? Because if it did, it would lend a lot of um, support to the fact that light is one of the drivers for that. And to get some background on the impact of light on winter blues and how that may contribute to either seasonal affective disorder or others changes in mood over winter, we had the chance to talk to Professor Greg Murray. So Greg Murray is a professor of psychology from Swinburne University, and he's got a national and international reputation for clinical psychology research, 
and undertakes a lot of NHMRC-funded research, including a current project on a non-line intervention for bipolar disorder. So thanks for helping us out, Greg. So welcome, Greg. Well, it's a great pleasure to be speaking to you. General question, very broad question. Why why is light important to circadian function? Well, that's a, a really fundamental question because if, if we think about what the circadian system in humans and other organisms is designed to do, and the way that I simply characterise that is the circadian system has been adapted over evolution because nature has worked out that sunrise and sunset are too important to react to and they need to be predicted and so we have something called predictive homeostasis and the circadian system is you know an example par excellence of predictive homeostasis that there's an adaptation that involves guessing what's going to happen in the environment that's what the circadian system does and if we lived on a planet that didn't have seasons the circadian system could just be a closed system because it is a true endogenous, you know, inbuilt in into the body, a true endogenous clock, which literally predicts on a daily basis when the sun's going to go up and, and, and come down and uh, prepares, in the human case, prepares the body for the day and prepares the body for sleep at night. But because another feature of the, the planet, apart from our 24-hour light-dark cycle, the, another feature of our planet is the seasonal year. The sun actually comes up at a different time, you know, uh, depending of day, depending on the seasonal year. So the circadian system is an open system. So even though it's an endogenous clock, it, it is a true clock that predicts when the sun's going to come up. It's open to environmental information and, uh, and gets tweaked every day or resynchronized every day. And the primary thing in the environment that resynchronizes the circadian clock is light. And so the, the uh, light exposure, particularly through the eyes, is a fundamental part of how the circadian system has been designed by evolution to function. In a way, we can't really separate light from circadian from circadian function, they're fundamentally interconnected. That's on a day-to-day basis, Greg, but one of the things, you know, we're creatures of habit and we try and get up at the same time every day. How does that change with seasons? You mean in terms of what what behaviours people actually express across the seasons? Yeah, so both behaviours and uh, response to light. Okay, so we th- there is some evidence that human beings, in fact, we've done a a large longitudinal study in Australia where we sent questionnaires out to people in winter, summer, winter, summer across three years without alerting them to our interest in the seasons as a determinant of their responses. We, we kept that from participants until the study was over. And one of the things we found not surprisingly is people are in fact, they're spending more time in bed in the darker months, which includes getting up later in the mornings in winter than they do in summer. Now, as you say, partly that might be a, uh, a seasonal adjustment that they're making uh, from a biological perspective, but it also could be uh, a habitual sort of response and could be a more day, immediate daily response to the fact that it's colder in the mornings and darker in the morning so uh, that it's less motivating to get out of bed. And, and, that, and the fact that I've just mentioned three possible explanations for why there might be seasonal change in human behaviour, that's the sort of realm we're working in here. 
it's it's interesting when we start about out talking about a fundamental biological system like the circadian system which sits deep in the brain we can we can make the mistake of uh, reducing all our considerations to that biological level of analysis when of course human beings are biological psychological and social and so any patterns of behavior or mood we see across the seasonal year um, we really should be, you know, looking at the, them holistically the same way we do any other human behaviour. That's right. It's a really interesting point because that's, I've often thought of that, even in my own case, let alone the, the clients and patients that I see, is that obviously we know it's well established that there's variations in, in the life and therefore the effect on our mood, and we'll get onto that in a minute in terms of winter blues and, and indeed seasonal affective disorder. But I think it's interesting that because, of course, when it's darker, a lot of us may socialise less or, you know, go to bed earlier or, or stay in, stay indoors and maybe isolate ourselves a bit more and not do our exercise or our routines that we have. And I'm wondering, so in your research that you've done, or obviously you've done a lot of writing around this, do you think that it's... What sort of proportion are the, so, the psychosocial factors compared to the light factors? That's that's a that's a good question, Moira. Um, I don't think we can reliably quantify that. But just to give you, there is one quantification I can give you, and that's about the extent to which we see mood changes in the general population. As I, as I say, I mean, one of the things in this area, if we're talking about seasonal effects, so, you know, you started out talking about light's effect on the circadian system. And uh, that one sort of uh, hypothesis in that area is the, the well-known one that seasonal changes in light may there for influence circadian function and therefore human behavior that's one but there are there are other ways that light and circadian function might be linked to mood and behavior but if we're talking about the seasonal situation there's a real issue here with behavioral research generally we don't do large-scale prospective studies of human beings and this and the seasonal year is a very long time frame so you can count on the fingers of one hand the number of studies that actually have longitudinal information on seasonal changes of behaviour in human beings. As, and I mentioned one that we've done earlier. We, we, so with that, that one study that we've done, I can tell you that we did find, uh, it, this was uh, data collected in Melbourne, Australia, we did, in a, in a random community sample, we did find a small uh, seasonal effect on uh, a mood variable that we might call positive affect or behavioural engagement. And that was uh, the the seasonal effect was the one that the you know the general public might expect that that positive effect was a bit lower in winter than than in summer, but the amount of variance explained by season in that variable was about nine percent. And of course, when you when you think about it, your positive affect is determined by a whole range of things. Uh, you know, you imagine a day in winter and you might think, well, one of the things that impacts my mood is the weather. But of course, another thing that impacts my mood is how I'm going at work or how the kids are going at school or my health or my et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the, there's a whole universe of factors that determine human mood. Weather and seasons, potentially one of those that, that have an, a measurable effect. But I think we we may be tempted to overstate that because... Uh, well, for all sorts of uh, social reasons that we can easily guess. In terms of, I mean, there's all those psychosocial factors that do 
affect our mood and variations, fluctuations. What exactly is the mechanism then if, of light affecting our mood? Okay, so so this is let's go back to this circadian story. There are at least two distinct ways that light can af affect uh, our mood through the circadian system. One is an acute effect of light on uh, emotional and arousal pathways in the brain. Uh, and it looks like, and, and, and this research is, is still in its fairly early stages, but it looks, looks like blue, blue spectrum light in particular may have these acute arousing effects on the brain uh, and particularly on brain centres involved in emotional processing. So, so that's an acute effect. And I suppose many of the listeners would be conscious of an effect on their moods or emotions uh, you know, when they wake up in the morning, it's a bright blue sky day. O often people uh, find an effect in, on their moods related to that. And part of that mood effect could be through that biological arousing effect on emotional centres in the brain. So that's an acute effect of mood. But the other major way in which light can affect uh, mood through the circadian system is by resetting the circadian clock. So, and, and also, as I mentioned earlier, stabilizing or synchronizing the circadian clock. So the, the circadian clock is designed to take in light from the environment and that's part of it staying synchronized and, and doing its job of optimally timing processes within the body and the interaction between the body and the environment. So not surprisingly, there's uh, quite a bit of evidence that light has this longer term effect. So uh, daily patterns of light exposure have an effect on mood, which we uh, many people believe is being mediated through changes in circadian function. And in fact, in some mental disorders, bipolar disorder in particular, uh, there's been a long-standing hypothesis that some sort of weakness or lack of robustness in circadian function uh, explains uh, some of the vulnerabilities to the extreme mood states of mania and depression that we see in bipolar disorder. And one of the processes that might trigger that sort of disruption in people who are prone to bipolar disorder is changes in, uh, in light information. So we do uh, consider things like time zone travel, a potential trigger for relapse in bipolar disorder, and we would understand that through some sort of circadian mechanism. You talked about that there may be other factors, not just light, changing behaviour and mood in winter. So should we be using the term SADS or should we call it something else? Yeah, that's a good question. So let's now talk about seasonal affective disorder. Very interesting diagnosis. So seasonal affective disorder is understood as a variant of recurrent depression. Recurrent depression is a disorder where people have multiple episodes of depression through their lives. Seasonal affective disorder is understood as a variant of recurrent depression where the episodes of depression tend, uh, fall at the same time, same season of each year. And winter is the season that, of course, most people are interested in, the notion of winter depression. Now, so that's the description of the phenomenology of seasonal affective disorder. 
right? It's a, it's a pattern of depressive episodes across time where they fall in winter. That's what the uh, DSM characterises it as. But what's interesting about seasonal affective disorder is it has always, the construct of seasonal affective disorder has always brought with it an etiological explanation and a treatment. So, the, the, you know, the, the original scientific papers that argued that there was such a thing as seasonal affective disorder in the late 1980s argued for this pattern of depressions across time in combination with an argument that the depressions were due to uh, diminished available light in wintertime, which was probably operating through a circadian mechanism and which could be treated by bright light. So what's interesting about that diagnosis is it brings with it uh, some other hypotheses. So it's not just a descriptive condition. So you're absolutely right, David, in your question. When we talk about SAD, we are hauling in, because of the, the history of that diagnosis, a particular type of explanation. And so then it, what, what a number of researchers, in, including p- people that I'm associated with, have been looking at over, over a period of time is let's break down those hypotheses that come with that construct and see which of them are true. So the, f- the first question you might want to ask about seasonal affective disorder is, does anyone exhibit that pattern? To what extent do people actually exhibit a pattern where their depressions tend to fall in wintertime? And in fact, there's not really very strong, reliable evidence that that there is such a group of people when we look, especially when we look prospectively, actually tracking people's behaviour across time. So the stability of the seasonal affective disorder diagnosis is not very strong. That is, you know, someone who we diagnose as having seasonal affective disorder at one point in time, we follow them up two or three years later they may no longer be having episodes in that seasonal pattern. The, so, that, so that's the, the first issue. To some extent, the, the, the prevalence of this particular pattern of depression where it falls, tends to fall in winter for some people, it's probably been overstated because the research in that field has tended to use retrospective self-report as the primary way of determining whether someone has a seasonal pattern or not. And it doesn't take much thought to realise that if, if you ask me what season of the year do I tend to feel worse, then there's all sorts of cultural associations with the season that I might haul into my mind when I try yeah. and answer that question. Uh, and so the, the standard questionnaire that's been used to characterise people as having seasonal affective disorder or a seasonal pattern to their depressive episodes probably overstates the prevalence of seasonal affective disorder. In, a, in Australia, our, our, our best bet of the prevalence of seasonal affective disorder is about one in 300. I know if you were speaking to my colleagues in Canada, they would be wanting to interject at this time and say, no, no, where we are, the prevalence is significantly greater. So, so there's a question around how many people do reliably show this pattern. Then, of course, there's another question under that. And the question is, well, if people do show this pattern, to what extent is it due to the mechanisms that the uh, proponents of seasonal affective disorder put forward? Is it due to light? And one of the well-known sort of deductions from the light hypothesis 
of that, that, that seasonal affective disorder is due to diminished available environmental light in wintertime is the latitude hypothesis, the idea that the further you are from the equator, the greater the seasonal variation in available light and therefore, people might expect, we would find more seasonal affective disorder further from the equator. And this is a common idea in the, in the you know, general public and the media. But in fact, that hypothesis has not been strongly supported. A few studies found a latitude effect with increased prevalence of seasonal affective disorder further from the equator. But other studies, especially ones further north, have failed to find that association. So the, the, the implication that comes with the notion of seasonal affective disorder, that it's due to the changes in photo period, has not been strongly supported. And that's where people like myself have started to say, well, maybe to, to the extent that people do show this seasonal variation in wintertime, and as I say, it's probably not a large effect, um, but, but to the extent that people do, and many people report that they do, um, what, what else might be changing? And as Moira said before, there are clear lifestyle factors that change, particularly in some cultures, um, that uh, could explain a drop in mood. Less exercise, less socialising. Um, many people in the city that I live in would, would characterise a behavioural change with winter that way. Um, there may also be a light mechanism, but there may also be a behavioural mechanism going on. So it seems like partly what you're saying is our, our methodological issues or me methods, there's issues there that need to be improved for us to really to know even things like the prevalence, I guess. You're not quite, we're not quite sure whether the, the way we're measuring things, as you say, like retrospective self-report, et cetera, is, has been good enough. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. I mean, this is uh, one of the things we know well in psychology generally. You know, a lot of the explanations and, and, and constructs of psychology refer to long-term patterns across time, you know, personality, Etc. But in fact, we know that, that people are very bad <laughs> reporters of their own behaviour. Anything beyond about an hour, people aren't actually reporting on what happened. They're reporting on, they're reporting via some sort of autobiographical story of who they are. And if you construct yourself as a seasonal person, uh, you you will report that. In fact, one of the early studies we did in this area, which is where some of my scepticism, which I'm sure you're hearing in my answers, uh, came came from, is is um, we correlated scores on this seasonal questionnaire that everyone uses to assess SAD with scores on, firstly, uh, a personality questionnaire, and secondly, a measure of external locus of control. And what we found is people who report themselves to be highly seasonal also describe themselves as being uh, high on measures of neuroticism, that is they're vulnerable to distress generally, and high on scores of external locus of, of control, that is they explain experiences in their life as being due to events outside themselves. And so, yes, this, is, this has been part of our thinking on this for a long time, that whenever we build a story based on self-report, we, we will be uh, bringing into the data 
people's beliefs about themselves rather than just an accurate reporting of what their behaviour is. And when it comes to the seasons, of course, there is very strong cultural associations. Uh, and so we, would, we need to be careful about the effect they're having on our assumptions. That's not to say that the, the explanations in, involving the circadian system and light are not potentially important. In my opinion, uh, well, for, for example, for those people who are diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder, it is the case that bright light treatment is an effective treatment. So that's great. Uh, that that uh, It's difficult to demonstrate that that operates through a circadian mechanism, but the fact that the treatment exists is wonderful. Um, I, I do have to add that antidepressant medication also works, uh, you know, consistent with the idea that SAD may not be a specific discrete diagnosis. And also my colleagues in Canada have just demonstrated that bright light treatment also works for non-seasonal depression. Uh, yep. So again, it, we might not be talking about something that's particularly seasonal, but we, we, because of seasonal affective disorder, the research world, especially people who are interested in mood and mood disorders, have been strongly encouraged to pay attention to these circadian me mechanisms and biological rhythms generally, which include sleep. Oh, it's great. It's great to hear your comprehensive answers and it makes sense now with your um, recent editorial, which is something kind of like sad schmad. Questioning whether it, we should be really talking about it, but that's, that's wonderful to hear firsthand account. Thanks very much, Greg. So, if we don't use the term "sads," what alternate term should we use? Well, the question is, what are we trying to describe? So, if if, we're, if a, a, a client comes to me and says, "It's winter. I'm down in the dumps," and that happens to me every winter. I, I, I don't need to necessarily worry whether that's an accurate representation of their pattern of mood across time. I will just say, so you're down in the dumps now. Here's a few things that I think might be useful strategies. So, And that would include light exposure. So I, I personally think there is enough evidence to, to think that uh, if someone is characterising their mood as having a seasonal pattern and they're presenting in the darker months, uh, with a uh, with lowered mood, then I personally would include light exposure as part of the treatment, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean buying a light box and going through a, a light therapy procedure. Uh, but in in Australia, where I live, even in the middle of winter, we do have enough outdoor light available to us to keep the circadian system synchronised. So so I will be prescribing a morning walk. Or, or even a lunchtime walk, which is uh, chronobiologically a little bit complicated to understand, but the, the evidence is that light at lunchtime works pretty well as well as morning light. Um, so I'll include that as one of the strategies, but I'll also be treating their lowered mood as like other forms of lowered mood and be looking at the cognitions that are part of it, the relationship issues that might be part of it, the behavioural activation issues that might be part of it. That is the standard biopsychosocial approaches that I would use for any client. Great. Thank you very much, Greg, for those really helpful insights. And thanks for your help with the podcast. That's a pleasure. It's been great fun. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. It was wonderful. Well, that's a really interesting perspective from Greg, really trying to debunk that the winter blues, it's just all sads and 
all about the light and light's really the answer. So, yeah, whilst light's part of the way of people feeling better over winter, what are some other things people could do, Moira, to help if they do get winter blues? Interestingly, as anyone who's depressed, whether it's seasonal or not, it's well known that CBT, so cognitive behavioural therapy, is an effective treatment. As as are antidepressant medications for you know in at times you know that as a psychologist I wouldn't be first line of treatment but obviously aware that they're very 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 needed in some cases and also light light therapy but as an antidepressant in the absence and it's you know apparently there's no evidence that light therapy whether it's for winter or not is any better necessarily long term for depressive as a depressive treatment than medication and or CBT. So the other things that people can do is to, as as Professor Murray was talking about, is actually be aware that they can preempt this time is difficult for them. So to keep up their exercise, keep their movement going, their physical activity and their social connections, like keeping up their socialising, making sure that they have things pre-planned Yep. Set things in, if you, especially for exercise. I know for me, I was talking about it earlier, I need an external locus of control. I need the neighbour over the road to be out <laughs> the front. Otherwise, I just won't go yeah. to the, the, the exercise that I'm planning to do. I just need an incentive or someone else that I'm accountable to. Yeah. So making sure that – so in psychology terms, we would call it um, behavioural activation, just to make sure that people are activated, that they're not just sitting or lying in their rooms and, and disconnecting themselves from things and things that yeah. they enjoy. So for family members and friends or people they know that might be depressed or, or they, they themselves, just to realise that there's things that people can do just to make sure that their social rhythms keep going and that their physical rhythms with activity and social engagements and those external expectations to keep going too, just to get through. Because whether it's seasonal or not, depression always lifts. Yeah. And the person who's had the most severe depression in the world will will agree with me, will agree with you that it does eventually lift anyway. Often, sometimes without treatment or intervention, it just, it just has a spontaneous. But people don't want to wait that long sometimes, you know, yeah. too many months or years. You actually want to have this proactive approach. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I really like that suggestion. So recognising that withdrawal from winter or withdrawal mm-hmm. from the environment if you're feeling depressed yeah. can be one of the natural responses, but to counteract that by remaining engaged and yes. scheduling your activities. Yeah, because social isolation is the most depressing thing really mm-hmm. for, for most people. That's what causes people to, to have the, it can inflame even a, a lowered mood will, will remain lowered and if, if there's not that stimulation. Yeah. So if you're looking for more information on light, the effect of seasons on mood, the Centre for Environmental Therapeutics has really great resources online and they're at cdt.org. Anna Wirtz-Justice is one of the people that writes for the Centre for Environmental Therapeutics. She's just a doyen of melatonin, light and the circadian rhythm. Uh, And there's some posts on Sleep Hub. There's a post on seasonal affective disorder as well as a post on light therapy, which actually talks about different bright light sources that you can use if you're wanting to use bright light treatment. Okay, so we've come to the clinical tip of the month. What have you got for us, Dave? I'm going to pinch your idea. You just did such a great discussion about what behavioural activation is and how people can use it if they're getting winter blues or feeling a bit withdrawn. 
I really love that technique and we've borrowed it and we tend to use it a bit in people who've got fatigue or sleepiness problems because sometimes with fatigue and sleepiness as well, people both can feel you know, less activated mm. uh, and do withdraw from things because they just don't have the energy to, to do things. Yeah. Whereas if they put back in and structured activities like social engagement, like morning exercise, like getting out and engaging uh, with the world, mm. it can make quite a difference to en- the impact of energy levels. It's not going to cure their sleepiness and it's yeah. not going to get rid of their sleepiness, but can make it feel that it weighs less heavily. Yes, um, even just a 10% more or something can be quite significant yeah. and it's better than doing nothing, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. Mm. Now, Moira, what, what's your pick of the month? Well, my pick of the month, just keeping with the theme and with Professor Greg Murray, that yeah, when we were reading or thinking about this podcast, came across an article in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry. It's just an, an editorial that he had done earlier this year or late last year. And actually, I'm glad we read it before we interviewed him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was too. We, we both phoned up on it. Before we interviewed Greg. Because he has it as the title of SAD, like, you know, SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. SAD, SHMAD. Is Seasonal Affective Disorder a Valid Construct? Which surprised me because I know that he we knew he was well known in the area for talking about light and an effect on our biological rhythms, etc. And particularly his expertise in bipolar disorder. But interestingly, he talks through this just a simple one-page article really about the fact is it's sort of it's maybe not a valid construct after all, according to him and several other researchers. And not so much that it might not exist, but that it's overstated, and that the uh, the the way that we've been measuring it, or the the validity of the constructs, or the measurements, self report measurements, and a few other things, just need a lot of improvement. So I think that it's not so much that it's not there; it's just he's just highlighting the methodological issues that are there that need to be addressed. Yeah. So I found that that was interesting, and we'll put a, a link to that. I think the listeners will be interested in that too. Yeah, so I'll you've got to have a chance to hear Greg, you know, expand on that and talk for about twenty minutes when we interviewed him. Highly recommend that editorial. It's a single A4 page, really concise from someone who's just really thoughtful and reflective and, you know, very challenging um, but really informative editorial. Mm. What about you? What's your uh, pick of the month? Well, I've kept on theme as well, but I've got a journal article from European Psychiatry uh, from last year and the title's Light as an Aid for Inpatient Recovery. And so it was a systematic review of literature that looked at using light for people in inpatient institutions, mm. so hospitals. And it was both uh, hospitals with people that are acutely unwell and may have got delirium or acute brain syndromes when they're unwell, yeah. um, and also for mental hospitals where people were admitted with depression. Uh, they f- found 32 articles that had looked uh, at the use of light in adult inpatients uh, and found in any of those settings, that the use of light improved outcomes for mm. people, wow. which is something that we actually don't do routinely in hospital is manage light exposure. No. But using bright light or managing the environment to optimise bright light in psychiatric settings, reduce depression scores, reduce length of stay. Yeah. In acute medicine settings, reduce the incidence of delirium uh, and therefore also reduce length of stay. So, yeah, Fantastic. I remember when I was working in public hospitals and the administrators about me about cost and other things, yeah. 
Imagine changing the light bulbs. Yeah. Um, exposing <laughs> people to light to reduce length of stay and improve cost efficiencies. You know, we yeah. should be all over it. Well, and that sort of that ties in really nicely with the focus on the workplace now too, with the yeah. changing light bulb light bulbs. So it's not so yeah, improving well being in general. Um, whether you're in the workplace or staying in as a hospital inpatient. Oh, that's great. So that was recent, late last year, did you say? Yeah, so published in March 2016 in European Psychiatry. Okay, excellent. So things that are coming up over the next month. So Moira, do you want to give another plug for Sleep Sleep Awareness Week? Yes, Sleep Awareness Week in Australia is July 3 to July 9. And stay tuned for things in your area. (laughs) There'll be some media exposure and some activities around, around that. And look out for the next episode of the podcast, which will also go to air on July 3rd, so right at the start of Sleep, Perfect. Sleep Awareness Week. Perfect. Uh, and we'll have Dr. Simon Frankel join us as a guest co-host. Simon will have been to Sleep 2017 meeting, which is on in Boston yes. uh, next week. Unfortunately, I'm not able to go. Um, but we'll be able to talk to us about the latest in sleep research and thinking in sleep that's talked about at that meeting. Great. Looking forward to it. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Please keep sending us your suggestions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And, of course, if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, subscribe by any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Thanks a lot. We're listed on Stitcher and Google Play as well now. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. See ya. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.